your brothers and from in the game found the secret word so we're working on the drain lend the princess a hand in the muscle land so the action with the brothers you'll be hooked on the brothers now evil cooper and his troopers are up to misbehaving they kidnap the princess mushroom land saving abusing and confusing everybody discovers they can't help Hey guys, I am Cassidy. As ever, this is Cassidy is Alive. I hope that you're well. I'm pretty fine, feeling good today, good spirits, positive vibes, positive vibes. We've been doing this for 10 weeks now. Wow. <laughs> I am hoping that in that time, I have shown any amount of improvement in general quality, like, at all. <laughs> Though, it should be said that I am thankful. I am very much appreciative of every one of you, every and any one of you, that have listened to this shitty little venture of mine. Those 20 to 30 weekly views, am I right? Small as the figure may be, though, I really do appreciate every last one of you. And, if this is your first time joining me, hi! <laughs> I am Cassidy. I am an abnormal girl that talks a whole bunch of bullshit about whatever, once every week. Last week, it was nostalgia. A few weeks back, a piece on Randy Stair was featured. He was the Weiss Market shooter. And that was a little piece, a little bit, that I was actually really, really proud of. And this week, of course, you can no doubt tell by the little thumbnail, by the image, that we're talking about Super Mario. A brief history of the character, and naturally, the franchise all of those games, that big franchise that he built. Empire that he built? Hmm. Maybe not, but close to it, yeah? Close to it, <laughs> sorry. Anyway, this week, I played Super Mario 3D World, the recent excellent port to the Nintendo Switch. And for the first time... No, I never had a Wii U. Yes, playing this game did prompt this week's episode. Yes, I did also play Bowser's fucking Fury. And yes, indeed, I do have some thoughts on it. It was very good. But, and with regard to both 3D World and Bowser's Fury, that will come towards the trail end of the show. Because we have a fair bit to cover before then. I will say this much though, I have enjoyed my time with these games this week immensely. 
very much, very much so. I said very much Cho. I'm, oh my god. That's what I almost said. <laughs> but anyway, before all of that, it has been seven days since we last spoke. So, it is time to catch you up on what was my week. All of you, listen up! There was one week ago. This past week, it was week six in the year of our Lord, 2021. I think that might be my catchphrase, the year of our Lord. No. <laughs> Your girl, Cassidy, listened to the new Pale Waves album. Now, before we get further in, feel free to skip ahead eight so minutes. If you're not interested in my week, I don't mind at all. For those staying with me, Pale Waves, British pop rock group Pale Waves released their sophomore LP this past week entitled Who Am I through the UK indie label Dirty Hit. This is a solid collection of songs coming to a comfortable 34 minutes eh, thereabouts. Heather Baron Gracie has a wonderful, just beautiful vocal performance throughout this entire album. It's what really carries the record. In my estimation, that's, that is what carries the record. Heather Baron Gracie. Mm. It's just a powerful pop delivery with this alternative flavor, literal, <laughs> literal music to my ears. Hugo Silvani, the lead guitar player, came into his own on this album. I think, if nothing else, he has certainly found his style, and I put emphasis on the pronoun he and the word style because it was really Silvani that found and stuck to his style on this record. I referred to this album as a collection of songs, and that, more or less, is the experience here. Don't get me wrong, I did like most everything featured on Who Am I, although there was a clear lack of, a clear lack of direction, we'll say. What I mean by that, this record didn't quite form a cohesive whole. Sonically, it was kind of all over the place, I guess, would be one way to say it. It wasn't very smooth track to track. You can think of an album, and I like to think of an album, and you might too, so you can think of an album as a musical period piece. They're windows into a moment in time in the life of a songwriter. Who Am I, at least in that regard, has a quality that I'd call closer to a, a best-of compilation. As I'd said, it was a collection of songs... It was a collection of songs from a few different different moments in the lives of these particular songwriters. That said, I did really enjoy the majority of tracks featured here. In a vacuum, songs like Easy, the pop-punk-inspired You Don't Own Me, She's My Religion, and especially Run 2 are all fucking great. But as an album, Pale Waves, Who Am I, is surely weaker than the sum of its parts. 
regardless, this is a good LP, and I would recommend it. First album is better, though. Well, <laughs> outside of music and into the greater world, I'm sure that you're sick of hearing about it. I, too. It's fucking everywhere. Inescapable. But it is our reality now. Unfortunately. And that is COVID-19, coronavirus, and just briefly on this. Because it is of note. It is important. There has been a small outbreak in my home state of Victoria. And we have entered a short-term lockdown. At the time of recording, the lockdown is still ongoing with some uncertainty as to whether or not the current five-day lockdown is going to be extended, I will definitely have an update on that front next week. I, I can say that. I'll have an update on it next week. I just wanted to briefly mention it, because like I said, it is important. Uh, I'll say this, though. It is nice to see the other states, as well as the media, commiserating this time, as opposed to pointing the finger and fucking laughing. Laughing. <laughs> laughing. Lovely change of pace this time around, guys. Thank you. <laughs> In other news, I finally see eye to eye with several of my high school teachers on the topic of Marilyn Manson. <laughs> I'm not even sorry for that. He is a bad, bad man after all. But it does strike me as a little odd that a certain crowd now claim to be having difficulty in listening to Marilyn Manson in light of these extreme abuse allegations. Like, what, are you, <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? Sure, revelatory information about the man Brian Warner, but infamous shock rocker Marilyn Manson, the Hellspawn, a character that he plays, a dark persona who literally abused naked women on stage as part of the act in the early fucking 90s. Now, now, it is hard now, now it's uncomfortable to listen to this fucking guy. Fascinating where the lines are drawn. PWA, a wrestling promotion out of Sydney, back with a live crowd and with their debut pay-per-view on Fight, back in Black Label, February 12th. Very, very good show. I enjoyed it. I would recommend it. It is well worth the $15 asking price, and if you have a Fight membership, you will get credits, and you can buy a $15 pay-per-view on $10 credits. You can buy a $19 pay-per-view on $10 credit. It's fucking awesome. So you can watch this for free if you already watch shit on fight anyway. <sighs> this show was great. It featured an excellent match between Jessica Troy and Robbie Eagles. That opened the show. It was really fucking good. We had the return and surprising to me, the Australian debut of Aussie Open. This is a tag team, Kyle Fletcher, Mark Davis, they were really fucking great in UK just a couple of years ago. Two years, though, 
after completely destroying, just killing his knee, Mark Davis is back. And the boys are back. They are such a great fucking tag team. Like, one of the best in the world. And they not missed a beat. They had a really good match here. Like, this was, at this point in the show, probably the match of the night. But then, main event ladder match for the tag belts. The Velocities, Paris De Silva and Jude London versus MK Plus Ultra, which is Michael Spencer and Kai Drake. Kai Drake, in particular, keep your eye on this kid. This kid is really fucking good. This was half an hour of insane spots in an ongoing feud that actually warrants that kind of thing. I rated this match four and a half stars. It was the cherry on top of what was already a really, really good show. I highly recommend it, and I highly recommend the show itself. PWA's Back in Black Label, Good Aussie Pro Wrestling. And that is all that I have for you from this past week in the life of Cassidy. So, babe, fuck the foreplay, right? Fuck the foreplay. Let's just dive right on in there. Right on in there. <laughs> We're learning about and exploring Super Mario this week. So, why are we fucking around here? Let's just get into it. Transition. Mario Jumpman Mario. He is beyond shadow of a doubt the single most recognizable video game character to ever exist. Through what is now four decades, Mario has served as the beloved face of Nintendo, and I would argue the face of the video games industry itself. With close to 700 million in lifetime sales, Mario as a franchise stands at the top of the gaming mountain, and it is also among the highest grossing media franchises of all time. This moustache-bearing, possibly racially insensitive plumber has a legacy that most real people could never dream to achieve. And as that legacy only grows larger today, let's take a look back at where it all began. Way back in the 1980s. This is a song from the 80s. The decade which... 1981. Allegedly, dates in early gaming are a little unclear. Given the timeline of events that we're about to go through, early 81, if by sheer process of elimination, does appear to be the most likely time frame that we're going to be looking at. So, after several failed attempts, and few to marginal commercial success to produce a video game that would prove popular in arcades, Japanese company Nintendo, who recently, that is to say within the last five years, venturing into the new video game industry had almost accidentally created what would become one of the most lauded games that the industry would ever see. Released in 1981, Donkey Kong was an overnight success, 
achieving the goal of matching the popularity of rival company Namco's Pac-Man. Though Donkey Kong began life as a different concept entirely, young developer and creative mind Shigeru Miyamoto sought to create a licensed game based on the classic Popeye comic strip. As an aside, Nintendo acquired this license the following year and did release Popeye in 1982 to a lukewarm reception. Donkey Kong's design was actually based on Popeye antagonist Bluto. Looking at it now, it's kind of like, yeah, now that you mention it, I see it. I totally see it. Popeye's damsel in distress, Olive Oil, was also reworked into a character known simply as Lady, though later she would be renamed to Pauline. Our protagonist and player character, as of yet unnamed, even upon Donkey Kong's release to the video arcade, this guy was still not officially given a name. Though he was given the ability to jump, Early in Donkey Kong's development, the object of the game was to navigate a maze while avoiding stage hazards. Yes, barrels. Though Miyamoto-san, genius in realism, reasoned that if players were to encounter a rolling barrel themselves, they would likely jump. Thus, yet to be known as Mario, was given his ability to jump. Without knowing it at the time, Shigeru Miyamoto had just created what would become the mascot for not just his company of Nintendo, but perhaps the mascot for video games as an industry. And he had also given this character his trademark feature, jumping. The feature led to the character being referred to as Jump Man. In Donkey Kong's English translation, the instructions specifically, you know, how to control Jump Man, because he's the man that jumps. The North American release of Donkey Kong was the first instance of Mario being given a name, and while far from official, that name was Jumpman. At least publicly. You see, Miyamoto-san wanted Mario to appear in cameo capacity in each game that he would produce, similar to how Alfred Hitchcock would appear cameo in most of his films, if not all of his films. Uh, today, that equivalent would probably be Quentin Tarantino, though he wasn't a big director, he wasn't even a director at this time. As an acknowledgement of the similarity to Hitchcock, Miyamoto-san originally named his new character Mr. Video. Mr. Video. It's got, just got the same ring to it, doesn't it? <laughs> he was officially renamed Mario with the release of Donkey Kong Jr. in 1982 named after Mario Segal. I'm not quite sure on the pronunciation of this guy's name, so I'm just going with Mario Segal, the landlord of Nintendo's American warehouse, who got into a heated argument with then-Nintendo president Minoru Arakawa over overdue rent. Forewarning here, as we briefly discuss Donkey Kong Jr., there will be some editorialism on my part. You'll know what slash when it is, but the disclaimer here just felt like a good approach. So, Donkey Kong Jr. 1982. In Donkey Kong Jr., you play as the titular character of Donkey Kong Jr. 
And for the first and only time, Mario is actually the antagonist. The object is to rescue your father, Donkey Kong, some might say to liberate Donkey Kong, literally release him from a cage. In spirit though, you are taking back the then mascot of Nintendo from the greedy clutches of a man named Mario. Donkey Kong Jr. isn't a very fun or even a very good game. It's not bad, though I do find it difficult to ignore what I obviously interpret as subtext to a much larger story going on behind the scenes. Nintendo's passive-aggressive event, avenge, revenge. It's intriguing to me, a very, very intriguing to me. You, you should know, for people that have been listening to me, at this point you should know that I'm intrigued by just humans. This is a very human thing. Mario was given his name sort of as a passive-aggressive shot at somebody that they didn't like. And, I don't know, I just, that really, <laughs> I'm, I'm just fascinated by that kind of thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> In the following year of 1983, the original Mario Bros hit the arcade to a positive reception. This game introduced Mario's brother Luigi, and the two of them clear out enemies from the sewers, also giving the pair their occupation of plumbers. They were also made Italian, because moustaches. <laughs> Mario Mario Bros wasn't quite as popular as Donkey Kong was, but it did help to further establish Nintendo as a major player in the growing video games industry. At this point, they were in arcades. I am not going to cover the home market crash, but just know that in North America, the home, con the home console gaming market completely crashed. Nintendo missed it, because as I said, they were in the video arcade. The video arcade didn't really see a sizable crash in 1983, the same way that the home market did. It was with a combination of clever marketing and a game that we're going to talk, talk about very soon with the NES that saw the home console market revive. It's not extremely relevant information to what we're covering here today, but I felt that it should nonetheless at least be addressed. There's enough information out there about the gaming, the gaming crash. It has been covered to death. I have no plans on doing it. So, where are we? I'm sorry. <laughs> We're going to have a look now, piece by piece and year by year, at Mario's major video game appearances. Before we do... In late 1983, Mario appeared in Donkey Kong segments on Saturday morning cartoon series Saturday Supercade. This aired on CBS, 19 Donkey Kong segments total between 83 and 84 were produced and aired, and it is notable for being Mario's first appearance on television. In 85, for the Japanese Famicom Wrecking Crew. I don't have much to say about the game Wrecking Crew. It's it's fine, kind of dull. Uh, by a matter of two months, it was the first Mario game to be released on a console before the arcade. 
So this was the first, in a way, the first Mario console exclusive was Wrecking Crew. So it's noteworthy just for that. But with those early years out of the way, we're at the perfect starting point. Super Mario Bros. September 13th, 1985, on the Famicom, later that same year in North America, on the NES, and I believe it was maybe early 87 in Europe. This game, designed by Shigeru Miyamoto and Takashi Tezuka, is widely considered one of the greatest video games ever made. This, realistically, is the game that built the Empire. So much in video games as a whole is derivative of Super Mario Bros. It was released to huge financial success, universal acclaim. It really is the gold standard of the 2D platforming genre. Key series elements were obviously introduced here. You had Bowser, you had collecting coins, question blocks, various enemies such as the Goomba, the Koopa, you had Princess Peach was first first introduced here as the damsel in distress. The standard power-ups like the mushroom. This is where a lot of that core shit made its debut. I will mention as we progress when more important stuff is added. The first sequel to Super Mario Bros. came the following year, Super Mario Bros. 2. And it was exclusive to Japan for a number of years before officially being rebranded as The Lost Levels outside of Japan. This is basically a very hard redo of Super Mario Bros. Unless you desire pain and anguish and just that kind of person, don't play this game. Also, in 1986 came the release of an animated film, Super Mario Bros. The Great Mission to Rescue Princess Peach. That's its English name. I'm not going to try to pronounce it in Japanese. This exists. Uh, <laughs> it is notable for being the first feature film to be based on the Mario franchise. More on that later. In 1988, the rest of the world got their own Super Mario Bros. 2. This game, however was in reality more of a ROM hack than its Japanese counterpart, Fuji TV's advertising venture through video games, 1987's Yumek Kojo Doki Doki Panic. Nintendo game director Kensuke Tanabe reworked Doki Doki Panic into Super Mario Bros. 2, explaining why it is so unique among all other... Uh, among all other Mario games, I don't know what happened there, I sort of had a brain malfunction. <laughs> it would later be known in Japan as Super Mario Bros. USA. This one, the original trilogy's Dark Horse, is a good game. It definitely is not spoken of with anything approaching the reverence of a lot of the Mario series, and understandably. But I would say that it is a fun game. Shortly after the North American release of Super Mario Bros. 2, also in 1988, came what is my favourite in the entire series, Super Mario Bros. 3, released once more to universal acclaim and selling 17 million copies worldwide. 
Super Mario 3 is the, well, first, <laughs> the perfect 2D platformer. <laughs> okay, let's just make that clear. Anyway, uh, I got lost again. Super Mario Bros. 3, yes, was the introduction of a few more things. Among certain enemies and certain new power-ups, this was the first appearance of an overworld map, which is now a staple of Mario games in general. You get them in the 2D games, in the 3D games. This was the first instance of an overworld map. It was also the first appearance of bonus levels, the ability to skip levels, and to a degree, the overworld itself, which this would become more pronounced in later games, but to a certain degree, the overworld itself was kind of tied to the gameplay. In Super Mario Bros. 3, each world also had its own distinct theme. The Fire World, the Fire World, sorry, the Final World, for instance, was Hellfire, and it was Brimstone. An earlier level was the Desert. Super Mario Bros. 3 didn't just start new conventions, it set a new standard. But with a new decade and more powerful hardware on the way, could it be outdone? Before getting there though, this was Dr. Mario, also on the NES. Produced by Gunpei Yokoi, Dr. Mario is a falling block puzzle game that features Mario outside of his plumbing area of expertise for the first time, assuming the role of a doctor. And I say assuming the role because I refuse to believe that this fucking guy is a licensed doctor. <laughs> it sold 10 million copies and was arguably the product that proved Mario branding could push units. That isn't to say it's bad. This is an addictive puzzle game and it went on to become a sporadically released series. In 1989, the Super Mario series debuted on the Game Boy handheld console with Super Mario Land. Short and sweet, this game sees a severely downsized Mario rescuing the debuting Princess Daisy in a new location known as Sarasa Land. It was directed by Satoru Okada, the first mainline Mario game to not be directed by Miyamoto-san. All in all, this is also pretty fun. It sold and was received well, not as widely played as other Mario games. Uh, I would recommend giving it a go, just because not a lot of people have played it, I would recommend giving it a go. Later that year, the short-lived Super Mario Bros. Super Show aired through Viacom. This featured WWE Hall of Famer Captain Lou Albano as Mario in live-action comedy segments, interspliced with poorly animated Mario Bros. shorts, which were also narrated by Captain Lou. This show was fucking terrible. Just awful. There was also The Adventures of Super Mario Bros. 3, an animated series based on Guess Which Game, another product of its time, but for what it's worth, the best Mario had to offer in other media at the time. We now enter the 1990s. 
November 21st, 1990, a launch title for the new Super Famicom system, Super Mario World. Design headed once more by Takashi Tezuka and Shigeru Miyamoto, Super Mario World built further upon Super Mario Bros. 3, expanding on the overworld concept and making use of a more complex controller to add to Mario's pre-existing moveset. He could more than just run and jump now, he could also do a little spin. <laughs> it also introduced Yoshi, who was actually conceptualized during development of the NES games, but shelved for the sake of hardware limitations. Now, with the more powerful Super Famicom system at their disposal, of course, known outside of Japan as the Super NES, Mario could be bigger and better, grander than it ever was before. Larger cartridges meant more memory space, which allowed for secret hidden levels. Another new addition that would become a staple in the series. Super Mario World sold 20 million units worldwide. It was the highest selling game of its generation, critically lauded, and still championed by gamers today. It was both a visual and technical achievement for its time, back when Nintendo were on the cutting edge of home console technology. Super Mario World even spawned an animated series of the same name. It was, without doubt, the new standard. There were more Mario games on the SNES, in 1992, an art creation game entitled Mario Paint was released to a warm reception. The following year had the Super Mario All-Stars Collection. This was four of the original NES games, Mario 1, Mario 2, The Lost Levels, and Mario 3, all remade with new graphics and slightly off physics for the SNES system, all in one package. Between those two was the debut of Mario Kart, a racing party game using Mode 7 graphics to give a rudimentary illusion of 3D. It created the kart racing subgenre and spawned its own spin-off of the Mario series called the Mario Kart series, which has persisted as one of Nintendo's highest selling series of games. Currently, Mario Kart 8 Deluxe is the highest selling game on the Nintendo Switch, just to give you an example of how well it does. So Super Mario Kart, doubtless, another landmark title. Also in 92, on the Game Boy, came Super Mario Land 2. This game, subtitled 6 Golden Coins, looked and played much li more like a standard Mario game than did its predecessor. It also introduced Wario, who served as the game's chief antagonist. I have always liked Wario, and I'm not sure why. I just really like Wario. 1993. The Super Mario Bros. Movie. Starring Bob Hoskins as Mario, John Leguizamo as Luigi, and Dennis Hopper as 
President Cooper, this feature-length abomination is a welcome but far less ethical alternative to waterboarding and to electroshock therapy. A critical and financial failure, this horrible mistake has served as an example of why adapting interactive media to non-interactive media is just a bad fucking idea. It was the final attempt at adaptation of Mario into film for almost 30 years. Slated for release in 2020 is an as-of-yet untitled feature-length animated Mario Bros. film produced by Universal's Illumination Studio. Unlike what was the shit show of 1993, this new project does feature Miyamoto-san as co-producer. Given its larger budget, a competent studio, and of course the presence of series creator, there is some cautious optimism surrounding this new film project. I am cautiously optimistic, but the Super Mario Bros. movie from 93, that is such bullshit. Oh, I just, this can't be worse. This can't be worse. But, unfortunately, 93 wasn't the only mistake Nintendo made in licensing Mario out to a third party. Because just one year later came something equally as bad. And we'll talk about that. Along with Mario entering the third dimension. And, of course, Super Mario World plus Bowser's Fury after the Song of the Week. This is some Aussie hip-hop for you. An early career track by Hilltop Hoods, who were one of the pioneer groups. This isn't on Spotify, I'm unsure why, but nonetheless, this is the title track of their 2001 album, Left Foot, Right Foot. More Bing Bing Wahoo coming right after this. I spent the last 22 years of my life Learning my way around the 
positive marks, probability's choice Random targets leaving feminine behind It's too much for one man to stare Regardless, the powder and pills Ain't no way to heal my friend Lean on one shoulder, the other runs It's like my skills are sense See life has many ups, many downs And many miles, many broken promises Hollow words and empty smiles Consequently many guys Women break from the hidden hate サモライ様カサディグランドミーセゴメントインミデルオブショープライムリールステートバトオネリギブミ60セコンドトゥドリバーメッセージファカユカサディチャンファカユCD to deliver message and introduce who the fuck am I. I am Samurai-sama, and my video compilation is number one video on the Kasadi channel. But Samurai-sama not acknowledge on the podcast. Answer this question, Kasadi. Why? But until you next time, sayonara. You've played every Mario game. You've conquered every Mario game. You think you've mastered all there is to know about Mario. Well, you better think again. New Super Mario World, made possible by the power of the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. You've never faced the challenge of so many enemies, so many obstacles, so many levels. You've never needed help from a dinosaur before. Super Mario World, you get it only with a Super NES. It's part of the growing lineup of games for the next generation from Nintendo. You've got to play it. You've got to have it. You've got a reputation. Now you're playing with power. Super power. Have you ever heard of Philip's seedy eye? You know Philip, the creepy guy that works down at the post office? Yeah, it's when he gives you that sideward glance. Philip's seedy eye. I am not even sorry about that. <laughs> the seedy eye, in reality, was an optical disc based system released in 1990, and it fucking failed miserably. In 1994, Nintendo licensed games were released on the platform, including Hotel Mario, a puzzle game where the object is apparently to shut doors. It, as with everything else on the CDI, is a total piece of shit, but it is notable for being a Nintendo game developed Entirely by Philips, 
a third-party company, and not just that, a Mario game developed entirely by somebody else. Hotel Mario will be the last spin-off title that I cover to any considerable length. Expect little more than acknowledgement for something like, for example, Mario Party. This is just for the sake of time. There are many, many main series games that we gotta cover as it is. 1995. This year saw the release of two mainline Mario games. Though it was released one month later, the first I'm gonna mention is a game called Mario Clash. This was a Gunpei Yokoi production for the failed Virtual Boy console. It was a redesigned take on the original Mario Bros. concept, but it is in stereoscopic 3D, where levels take place in a foreground and background plane. It is nothing too remarkable, nor really that fun to play. I only played it, of course I never played it on a Virtual Boy, I played it through Emulator, where uh, maybe with an actual Virtual Boy it'd be a little more enjoyable, <laughs> I can't say. Uh, although, the most notable thing that there is to say about this game is that it was the first true 3D game in the main Mario series, predating a game that, yes, we are quickly approaching. The other 95 project received much more attention, and that is Super Mario Bros. 2 Yoshi's Island. In this prequel story, you play as Yoshi, looking after baby Mario, whose crying is just fucking grating on my ears. I'll play a little bit of it here. Yeah, you have to listen to that shit. The entire game. It's bullshit. It did well financially, and people seem to love this game far more than I do. It does have a particularly beautiful art style. I do quite love that about it. It's very pretty. There was a few Yoshi puzzle games before Yoshi's Island, but it's more like, you know, this was the start of the Yoshi series proper. So it's another spin-off after this. This this at least is a Mario game. I'd recommend this game also as like I said, very beautiful art. And it has a unique playstyle, something unique to the rest of the series. The final SNES game in the Mario series was an RPG developed by Square called Super Mario RPG, released in 1996. But much bigger things happened in 96, as Nintendo entered the new generation with the Nintendo 64, alongside it, Super Mario 64. This game allowed for true movement on a third axis. Super Mario 64 was a watershed moment for 3D video games. It offers players a degree of freedom on a scale that had never been seen before, paying off what was a three-year-long development cycle. Notably, it repopularized the use of joysticks, now known as analog sticks, in home console gaming, it gave a precision to the movement in 3D that cannot quite be replicated at all using a D-pad. It certainly shows its age in the year 2021, but in 1996, Super Mario 64 was a technical marvel. To my knowledge, it was the first third-person game that allowed players to control the camera. 
The camera controls, by today's standard, very basic, very... You still can't move it around, really. But you can control the camera. And this was the first time that something outside of, like, Doom allowed you to do that. And that's that's really fucking cool. The object of Super Mario 64 is to navigate Bowser's castle, collecting stars in each level for an optional total of 120, though only 70 are required for the final fight with King Koopa. Being considered the first in the 3D Mario subseries, Super Mario 64 of course introduced a number of key elements, of which would become staples in 3D Mario, collecting stars being the prime example, down to the optional grand total, and completing certain objectives to obtain these stars. Financially successful, critical darling, piece of overwhelming nostalgia, Super Mario 64 ushered in a new era for our Italian plumber friend. Along came a shitload of spin-offs on the Nintendo 64, including Mario Kart 64, Mario Party, a new Mario Sports subseries spearheaded by Mario Golf and later Mario Tennis, as well as a new RPG series in 2000's Paper Mario. For the next six years, Mario kind of coasted on that popularity. The only new games were the aforementioned spin-offs, plus more than a few re-releases. There was Super Mario Advance, a series on the Game Boy Advance, which were just repackaged, retold versions of older Mario games. Uh, even at the launch of the new Nintendo GameCube system in 2001, there was no new Mario game alongside it. This was the first time to date that a Mario game would not launch beside new Nintendo hardware. Though there was Luigi's Mansion, which was on GameCube at launch, and it served to fill the void well enough while development continued on what would be the follow-up to Super Mario 64. And this would come on July 19th, 2000, in the form of Super Mario Sunshine, directed primarily by Yoshiaki Koizumi, and with both Miyamoto-san and Tezuka-san serving as producers. In Sunshine, Mario and Peach travel to Isle Delfino, where Mario is wrongfully accused of vandalizing the island with graffiti. The real culprit is Shadow Mario, a dark figure masquerading under Mario's likeness, who captures Peach shortly into the game. Mario is forced to clean up Isle Delfino, and he does this using a water spraying device known as Flood. It, Flood is an anagram for something, sorry, not an anagram, an abbreviation of something. I'm just not sure what it, what it's an abbreviation of. I'm not quite sure. Throughout Super Mario Sunshine, the player uses Flood to clean up graffiti and toxic sludge, attempt to rescue Peach, and of course, collect this game's version of stars, Shine Sprites. Now, Flood is tied to the game. Its mechanics, as stated, involve spraying water. One function is in combat. You can spray enemies. There's tactful usage of this in the game's boss fights, and there are a couple of really good boss fights in this game. Another function is an expansion of Mario's moveset. You can get extra air, or extended airtime by spraying flood, very novel, almost gimmicky mechanic. 
Much like Mario 64, Shine Sprites are obtained by completing objectives in levels. Some are hidden levels, some are hidden behind very esoteric puzzles, and it actually introduces a new convention, the self-contained pure platforming challenge, which would reappear in almost all mainline Mario games from here on. Sunshine released to positive reception, reaching 5.5 million in lifetime sales, though was considered a failure to meet sales expectations in its first year as claimed by then Nintendo president Sotoru Awada in 2003. I am so, so on Super Mario Sunshine. I have definitely appreciated it more as part of Super Mario 3D All-Stars on the Switch, but some things, they never do change, and frankly speaking, the camera in this fucking game is actual trash. It is hard to explain why without playing it, but rest assured, it was criticized heavily upon release. If you can get past frustrating cameras, however, I would recommend Super Mario Sunshine, the dark horse of 3D Mario. There wouldn't be another mainline Mario until 2006. During those intervening six years, a number of spin-offs like Mario Kart and the Mario sports games would expand with new additions to the catalogue. Paper Mario, in particular, got a sequel in the 1000 Year Door, which may be the best Mario RPG that there is. In 2003, a second RPG series, Mario and Luigi, debuted on the Game Boy with Superstar Saga. It was also during this time that Mario Kart GP debuted at Japanese arcades. This arcade cabinet debuted in 2005 and has still yet to see a Western release in any capacity. That same year also saw the release of Super Princess Peach on the Nintendo DS to a mild reception. This was a solo Peach 2D platformer, and it's not very good. In 2006, however, Nintendo would release a fully-fledged Mario game on the DS handheld, looking to capitalize on the popularity of an earlier DS port of Super Mario 64, Nintendo gave us what they titled New Super Mario Bros, a soft relaunch of the 2D Mario series, and the new Mario game would follow the classic 2D formula, and it was the first one of those to do that since Super Mario Land 2 released 14 years prior in 92. This was presented in 2.5D graphics, it did introduce some new features, including the flagship Mega Mushroom, which allowed Mario to grow huge and destroy and just absolutely obliterate everything in his way. But for the most part, it was a deliberate throwback to the Mario games of old. While the game was mostly subject to heavy praise, some critics were kind of sticky on that point. They really criticized the New Super Mario Bros. similarity to those previous games. Uh, it was also a very easy game, be that as it may, however, at 30 million worldwide in unit sales, New Super Mario Bros. was the best-selling game for the Nintendo DS and among the best-selling games in the entire Mario franchise. It spawned its own sub-series, the New Super Mario Bros. series, which, for all intents and purposes, is the ongoing 2D Mario series moving forward. As for the next 
3D Super Mario installment, development was nearing its end, and soon the Nintendo Wii system would have a Mario game of its own, and that game hit the shelves in 2007. Super Mario Galaxy. With good reason, this game is considered an absolute classic by most anybody who has played it. Released for the Nintendo Wii in November of 2007, Galaxy sold an astonishing 12.8 million worldwide and is, according to a few different aggregators, among the best critically reviewed video games of all time. As its name may suggest, Super Mario Galaxy is set in outer space. Its primary gimmick is gravity. Throughout the game, Mario will navigate galaxies using planetoids, a featuring planetoids, sorry, that each have their own gravitational pull, allowing Mario to completely circumnavigate these large spherical objects. As with previous 3D Mario games, the player collects stars throughout various levels, or galaxies in this game, where the gravity-based mechanic really, really shines. A lot of the harder challenges revolve around understanding how to manipulate the mechanic, and it is so fucking satisfying. Mario controls mostly how he did in Super Mario 64, with some new additions, given the Wii's motion control stick, you can wiggle the remote and perform a melee spin attack. In 3D All-Stars on Switch, the same attack is performed by simply pressing Y, and that is way better. Uh, <laughs> just TBH. I'd recommend that version, but really, do play Super Mario Galaxy. It is excellent. Before a sequel would come, three years later, Mario and his 90s rival, Sonic the Hedgehog, the Sega mascot, they paired up for Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games. It is Mario and Sonic at the 2008 Olympic Games, a collection of sports-based minigames. And there were a bunch more games in this series. They're still coming out. I, I don't care. <laughs> there was also New Super Mario Bros. Wii in 2009, releasing, of course, on the Wii, this was the second in the New Super Mario Bros. series, and mostly a standard 2D Mario affair. Its primary gimmick was cooperative multiplayer, allowing for up to four consecutive players in couch co-op. Despite this, it struck a good balance, and it was playable, just as playable, and just as enjoyable when played solo. It, uh... It sold pretty fucking well though. New Super Mario Bros. Wii sold an insane 30.3 million copies worldwide, with 10.5 million in the first six months it was on store shelves alone. If any more proof was needed, here it was. 2D Mario fucking sells. The following year, and beginning of a new decade, 2010, 
Then came Super Mario Galaxy 2. It was more of the same thing as seen in its predecessor, but prettier, a little more challenging, definite technological improvements, and some additional features, such as the ability to ride Yoshi. Galaxy 2 was subject to equal amounts of praise and met sales expectations at a lifetime of 7 million. I've not actually played Galaxy 2, though from what I understand, it's a situation where, you know, if you've played the first Galaxy, you have more or less played the sequel. I did play the next game though, Super Mario 3D Land. This was released in 2011 for the Nintendo 3DS handheld system, where it sold a very nice 12.7 million. 3D Land is a unique idea. The game is in 3D, while the majority of the gameplay is closer to, to a traditional 2D Mario game. As described by Miyamoto-san as a 3D Mario game that plays as a 2D Mario game. I, I will do my best <clears throat> to try to describe this. So, the levels are linear, like a 2D Mario game. Whereas a 3D Mario game, it's sort of a open world-ish, objective-based thing. This is linear start to finish. Player health is represented as with the traditional 2D Mario games by Mario's size. So taking damage will result in you shrinking. Uh, you The acquisition of a mushroom will result in Super Mario, you know, you get bigger. Elements otherwise absent from the 3D Mario titles, which typically have the health bar of some sorts. 3D Land is basically an amalgam of 2D and 3D Mario. The thing that you never knew that you wanted, but once you have it, it is so fucking good. This game is great. The level design, more than the concept, is fucking sublime. <laughs> Super Mario 3D Land is a game that I would highly recommend. We'll get to its bigger, younger brother in just a little while. 2012 saw the release of two games in the New Super Mario Bros. series. The first on 3DS, New Super Mario Bros. 2, which, when you think about it, is actually New Super Mario Bros. 3. <laughs> this game was unique in that it puts more emphasis on coin collecting than any other game in the franchise, with the player's total number of collected coins being prominently displayed on both the title screen and the overworld map. This game might be the single easiest Mario game ever released, and while as a final product it's fine, it reviewed well, there really isn't that much fun to be had with such a lack of difficulty. My own opinion, of course. New Super Mario Bros. 2 did well for the free 3DS, with lifetime sales of 13 million. Its home console counterpart, however, was New Super Mario Bros. U. For the struggling and the eventually failed Wii U. 
this was a more focused platforming challenge. Uh, it allowed, again, for four-player co-op, releasing to generally, generally favorable reception. It was notably the first Mario game to be released in HD, and that might be the most that can be said of it. I played the deluxe version of this game uh, for the Switch, and I more or less got sick of it about halfway through. We've seen this game a dozen times now since 1985. A couple dozen if you include all of the re-releases, right? New Super Mario Bros. U, despite this, was the third best-selling game on Wii U at 5.8 million units. It actually sold better than Sunshine. It has fared a little better on the Switch, where it is approaching 8.5 million, making for a respectable 14 million plus across both versions. For how low effort this game is, I would call it quite a huge success. In 2013, the Wii U was given a second game in Super Mario 3D World, the console counterpart to 2011's 3D Land for the 3DS. This had the same basic idea as its predecessor, the 2D, 3D Amalgate, but it expanded the game's scope given the far more powerful hardware. Its trademark feature was the new Catsuit Power-Up, which is pretty cool, really fun to be the cat. It also, once more, supports four-player multiplayer. Bonus leveled, but there were bonus levels featured, and they had Captain Toad. Exploring dioramic, platform-based levels sans the ability to jump. This spawned its own spin-off title in 2014, Captain Toad Treasure Tracker. I would recommend that game. 3D World included some extra elements from traditional 3D games, such as an emphasis on collecting stars, and some levels locked behind a certain number of them. This sold only a few thousand more than did New Super Mario Bros. U, making it the second best performing game on the Wii U. This past week, it was ported to the Nintendo Switch, and I finally had the opportunity to play this game. I absolutely love it. It is very, very fun, and there is a particular fluidity to the controls that I find to be extremely satisfying. Uh, there are some parts that are very pretty. The ice, I don't, it's not even really an ice level, it's just an ice overworld to, to this world. It's very, very pretty. Uh, the level design, it hasn't amazed me quite like 3D landed. And this game is very easy, but it is such a joy to play and to track down all of those collectibles. I would definitely recommend Super Mario 3D World as well. Mario's next major title came in 2015 with Super Mario Maker for the Wii U. A 3DS version came the following year. Super Mario Maker allows players to create custom Mario levels, share them online, and of course play levels designed by other players. What just what a great fucking idea. I must say. Like and there are some really amazing creations out there. 
the the servers for both of these games will unfortunately be shutting on March 31st, 2021, as both consoles are, or, or in the case of the 3DS, just about are discontinued. And there is a sequel, you know? <laughs> Across both versions, it has sold little over 6 million copies. Now, there are games between this one and the sequel, Super Mario Maker 2, but we'll circle back to those, and we'll just cover Mario Maker 2 now for the sake of convenience. It was released in June 2019 for the Nintendo Switch system, with gameplay and features that are largely retained from the original, though subsequent free updates have added more to it. Among those, my favourite addition, the ability to combine levels into worlds, complete with overworld maps, and then stack those worlds into what is effectively your own little Mario game. It also featured a collection of developer-made levels, basically a built-in campaign, and they are intended to serve as inspiration for level creation. What this leads to, however, is some brilliant fucking creativity out of Nintendo. They have a lease to be creative and make just weird, unique Mario levels that you're never going to see in any other mainline Mario series game. I, <laughs> I completely fuck that up. It's worth playing, like, even if for that alone, Super Mario Maker 2 sold 6.9 million, outdoing the accumulative total across both versions of the previous game. Both Super Mario Maker and Super Mario Maker 2 were highly praised by fans and critics alike. In 2016, Nintendo made its first venture into mobile gaming in an auto-running platformer, Super Mario Run, a largely forgettable pit stop in Mario history. At this time, you see, Nintendo, they were preparing for the announcement and release of the new handheld home console hybrid system aptly named the Nintendo Switch. A new 3D Mario title was revealed alongside the Switch, slated for a late 2017 release. Holding fans over in that time was the Ubisoft-developed, Ubisoft I almost fucked up the pronunciation of Ubisoft, holding fans over in that time was the Ubisoft-developed Mario Plus Rabbids Kingdom Battle, a crossover strategy game slash light RPG. I would actually recommend this one. It is surprisingly good. The big one, however, came to Switch systems worldwide on October 27, 2017. Super Mario Odyssey, the new 3D Mario game, and the first to be targeted directly at the core fanbase more than it was the casual audience. Odyssey features Cappy, a living hat that Mario dons throughout the adventure, who is used extensively. He is both a melee attack and an expansion to Mario's platforming ability. At times, Cappy is also a plot device, and he does most importantly serve as the tool used for the game's key feature, the capture ability, in which a player can inhabit and play as many of the enemies of the game, which, as you might guess, does figure into the game's objectives. Each level, with a few thematic exceptions, play out in a freeform sandbox manner, 
where Mario collects moons. This game's equivalent of stars, with an optional total of 999 scattered across several creative and unique levels. Selling over 20 million copies, Super Mario Odyssey was met with some seriously high praise, cited often as perhaps the best game in a long-running franchise. Now, I would not go quite that far. Odyssey, however, it is my favorite 3D Mario game. A few weeks ago, I dedicated two hours to talking about my favorite video games, and Super Mario Odyssey could have made that list on another day. Had I played the game more recently, it probably would have been there. Without hesitation, I would say that this is a strong contender for the best 3D platforming game of all time. A list which would naturally include several other Mario games. <sighs> We've been going for a while here. <laughs> Hope you're still with me. Not long until we reach the finish line, guys. Not long at all. So, the next one we already covered, that was 2019's Super Mario Bros. 2. Uh, Super Mario Maker 2, sorry. The following year, 2020, the Mario franchise reached its 35-year milestone. To commemorate this, Nintendo released Super Mario 3D All-Stars for the Nintendo Switch. I've mentioned this a few times already. This is a collection of Super Mario 64, Sunshine, and Galaxy, the first Galaxy, in one package. Not much was really done to these games. 64 and Sunshine were upscaled to HD, a couple of the textures were reworked in HD, Sunshine's in widescreen, the picture's just blown up. <laughs> Galaxy was given a little more work, and uh, I, I felt this was a really nice package. Some people didn't like it as much, I felt it was a nice package. Along with this was a new online multiplayer game, free to subscribers of the Nintendo Switch online service, Super Mario Bros. 35. This is the classic Super Mario Bros. game from the NES, though it is an online 35-player competitive battle royale with last-person standing rules. Defeated enemies are sent to other players you have a very short timer, which is extended by defeating enemies. It is a really cool concept. Very cool concept. And it is addicting. I for one fucking love it. This game is playable until March 31st, 2021, and I'm not quite sure what happens then. I hope that it's not gone forever. So do play it now. Do play it right now, unless it does go away for good. I don't know what happens. I hope it doesn't go. Mm. <laughs> but the most recent entry in the Mario franchise came packaged with the Switch port of Super Mario 3D World just recently on February 12th, 2021. It is called Bowser's Fury. This is a shorter adventure taking place in Lapcat. Bowser has been set on a rampage by insidious black paint that is never quite explained, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> he grows huge in size and seems to just mindlessly destroy. Mario and Bowser Jr. team up to liberate Bowser, and it, you know, they collect, ba Mario, sorry, collects cat shines. This game's equivalent of the MacGuffin stars. 
At random time intervals, Fury Bowser will emerge and wreak havoc on the world, disappearing again after a few minutes or if a cat shine is collected. Mario can also opt to fight Bowser directly, using bells that are scattered across the island and do require some of the collected cat shines to unlock. Gameplay is otherwise, is otherwise it's very similar to 3D World, uh, with the addition of a free-floating camera, as well as more vertical level design and objective-based challenges, things that are more reminiscent of those traditional 3D Mario games. There's only one world in Bowser's Fury, but I would absolutely play more. If this is the shape of future Mario games, or at least a future Mario game, like it's a little tech demo, color me intrigued. I give a thumbs up to Bowser's Fury. And that, my friends, is everything. Mario up to the current date, still going strong and producing games of excellent quality all these years later. Quickly approaching 40 years since Mario first appeared in arcades as Donkey Kong's unnamed adversary, which is almost as long as I have been talking. <laughs> Thank you for being with me this week, my friends, and I hope that you learned something about Mario while you were here. Up next week, I'll be discussing some of my favorite manga. I guess anime? I'm more into manga. I guess anime figures into that. I'll be talking about my favorite manga, including my absolute favorite manga, which isn't One Piece or Dragon Ball Z, so you'll have to listen to find out what that is. And we'll also be looking at emo, as it exists as a subdivision of punk rock. It's gonna be pretty interesting. Until then, please be well, and go do something nice for somebody that isn't expecting it at all. It'll be pretty cool. Trust me. Believe me. I will see you again next week. One love. Bye. We are dead. face of Nintendo, and I would argue the face of the video games industries itself, <laughs> with a, a close, with a close to seven hundred million. Il <laughs> well. Indus titties. The video game Indus titty. As in boobs. Thank God this is a short paragraph. Fuck's sake. Teen night. <coughs> ah, I have to do that all again. Uh, I can put... Um, oh, I can do the Bojack thing, the 90s grunge song. Yeah, I'll buffer them. I'll cut it and buffer them. Okay. <laughs> For the new Super Famicom system, Super Mario World, design was headed 
once more by Takashu Tezuka and (laughs) Takashu (laughs) he's not a peanut (laughs) Takashu he's a peanut Takashu Tezuka (laughs) holy